Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in CSI in Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Diana. Hey, Debbie. Good to see you today. It's good to see you, too. So we want to just let our listeners know really quickly that we have some very exciting changes coming up soon on this podcast. We're doing a little teaser. Um, just stay tuned. I think it'll be, will it be the next episode, Diana? That that's we... Yeah, that's what we're hoping for, that in our next episode, we'll be releasing some new information about some changes in our podcast and moving forward. And I think it's going to be a really good, positive thing for us at Psychologists Off the Clock. Yes, it's good news. It's good news. So don't worry, but stay tuned and hopefully you can listen to our next episode. We'll make some announcements. And Diana, speaking of announcements, I think you have um, a big workshop coming up soon. Yes, it's this coming weekend. So Sunday the 27th at Yoga Soup. If you haven't signed up yet, go online and sign up for the acceptance and commitment training workshop at Yoga Soup with me. It's going to be very experiential and we'll walk you through all the different components of acceptance and commitment training. Great. And it's for people in and out of the field, right, of psychology. So Yes. So there's CEUs offered for professionals, but then it's also for people that are just interested in practicing some of them skills themselves. Yeah. Well, cool. Good luck with your workshop, Dan. I'm sure it'll be fabulous. And I know you've been very busy, so it'll be it'll be nice to get that done. Yeah, soon. Okay, so we have an exciting episode today, too. Can you tell us a little bit about today's episode, Diana? Yeah, so we're going to be talking with Yotam Heinberg, and I met him at the Compassionate Mind Training Summit that happened in the end of April in New York. And I, I met him there and attended his uh, talk, which just really blew me away. He is doing phenomenal research in the area of compassion and really disseminating it to the general public. And his approach is just grounded in science, but also in our uh, training that he led us in. He was burning Palo Santo. He was doing rooting practices from South America, really integrating uh, neuroscience and these uh, indigenous practices into current uh, psychology. And I'm really excited for him to come on the show and, and share some of what he's doing and the changes that he's making uh, in sort of out in the world. So I think that you'll really like the episode. Wonderful. That sounds like such cool information and can't wait to hear what he has to say. 
Dr. Yotam Heinberg earned his doctorate at the PGSP Stanford Consortium at Palo Alto University. His interests originally focused on the cycle of violence, trauma, and aggression, which led him to seek out solutions to address these fundamental human problems through the vehicle of compassion. He went on to pursue postdoctoral training at Stanford CARE, which is the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. He trained in compassion-focused therapy with Professor Paul Gilbert, who developed the approach in the UK. He currently works as a clinical faculty member offering clinical supervision and training at the PGSP Stanford program in Palo Alto University. He continues to collaborate with the Compassionate Mind Foundation, and he is the Dignity Health Senior Research Fellow at, the Stan at Stanford with CCARE. His work at Stanford is focused on devising high-scale solutions in healthcare settings, developing and implementing online compassion-focused training modalities for nurses, physicians, and leaders. He is the author of Compassion Skills Training, an experiential evidence-based peer-to-peer program which has been implemented with thousands of people worldwide via the Bright City Learning Platform. In his work, he strives to implement programs that provide personal well-being benefits as well as positive systemic outcomes by enhancing teamwork functioning and alliance-focused collaborative attitudes. He lives in San Francisco and conducts various compassion-focused workshops nationally and internationally. So welcome, Dr. Heinberg. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Yes. So I'm really excited to talk with you. We met at the Compassionate Mind training, and I was really struck by your presentation there and the work that you're doing and really honored that you're willing to come on our show. And maybe we could just start with you talking about personally what brought you to compassion and resilience research. Sure, absolutely. Um, what brought me to Compassion work is what seemingly, maybe on a less intuitive level, feels for people like the uh, opposite of it, which is what you just named, the cycle of violence, trauma, and aggression. So coming out to the United States to study at Palo Alto University and Stanford in 2005, I was focused on the cycle of violence, trauma, and aggression. So we're working with populations like kids in inner cities, uh, looking at kids in war zones, uh, veterans coming back from war. And the more we looked at this, this fundamental dynamic, which is hurt people hurt people, which, which I believe is, is really the, 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 the core issue that, that troubles our, our species since the beginning of time. So this is beyond just um, clinical work or psychotherapy work. Uh, this is why we struggle as, 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 as humanity as a whole on this planet because we inflict pain on others and when we try to figure out why that is it's because pain was in, inflicted previously so it's this really vicious cycle and it's rooted in our, our threat system which is something compassion focused therapy speaks to quite a bit um, and emergence from this work in different types of context and implementing other programs was that it's not sufficient to just reduce bring down symptoms of stress, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and so forth. It's not enough to just bring down the symptoms. We also need to augment some human capacity so we don't continue to perpetuate uh, this vicious cycle. So the capacities that needed to be augmented are capacities for care, warmth, soothing, empathy, and compassion on a systemic level to really kind of buffer that threat response other capacities that needed to be augmented in the context of the compassion work are the fundamental values of shared humanity, the recognition that we are much more similar, much more alike than we are different. 
So I can speak to it as, as a positive, augmenting, increasing the shared humanity, or as the idea of reducing prejudice, reducing hatred, racism, and so forth. So th these perspectives are really part of the compassion model that we work with, part of increasing pro-social behaviors. Um, another perspective that gets integrated into the work that we're doing has to do with my longtime uh, friendship, connection, and collaboration with Dr. Philip Zimbardo, who's been a dear mentor. And that also has to do with looking at issues of prejudice, looking at systemic injustice. Um, so that really has to do with responding to the dark side, the shadow side. Um, and that, coming to, to Stanford to do my postdoctorate, focusing on compassion, I was able to have the fortune of meeting uh, Professor Paul Gilbert, who developed the compassion-focused therapy model. And that kind of brought things together as an intervention framework, trying to do that with, with different populations in different contexts. Yes. So and originally, can you share originally where you are from? Oh, of course. Yeah. So I'm, I'm from Israel originally. So I grew up in Israel. Um, I, I feel like in a way I've had the opportunity to be connected with different realities. Uh, on my father's side of the family, uh, they, they came from Germany because of the Holocaust. On my mother's side of the family, they've actually been in, in Israel for uh, five generations now. So really before the founding of the, the state of Israel, my, my mother's side of the family has always been there. So I've been fortunate to have a you know relatively safe childhood, but through the lineages of my, my parents and my family and people around me, I've been exposed to a lot of, you know, that kind of prejudice, hatred, racism, conflict type of context. And certainly that informed my, my interest in the cycle of violence, trauma and aggression. And now the compassion work is connected as well. Yes. And you spoke of uh, Philip Zambardo, who maybe some of the listeners may have heard that name or recognized that name from their you know, general psychology studies. But can you share a little bit about his work and, and who he is? Yeah, absolutely. So Phil is famous for, probably most famous for the Stanford Prison Experiment in 1971, when he kind of invited uh, groups, uh, random groups of uh, young people that acted as both prisoners and guards to enact the, this notion of being in a, in a simulated prison environment. And we're able to see very quickly that the power of the situation uh, resulted in, in the guards, which were again randomly chosen, became quite uh, aggressive, abusive towards the prisoners. The prisoners became beat down quite quickly. Um, and they had to stop the experiment uh, within a few days as opposed to a couple of weeks, which was the intention. What, what the experiment was trying to suggest is that the power of the situation, the contextual kind of environment, is much more powerful at predicting and dictating human behavior than personality traits. There's been other work to that effect, uh, like the Milgram experiments, of course, where people found themselves uh, shocking. Uh, innocent uh, study participants, uh, the shocks were not, were not real, but they thought that they were. So what we're seeing is that the, the, the situational context is very capable or with great facility, we can invoke within people the, the behaviors that have to do with malice, threat, aggression, abusive conduct, and so forth. Um, the important thing to say about Phil's work is that He's more famous for the prison experiment, for exploring the dark side. His, his book, The Lucifer Effect, is quite famous. But really, his work in the last 10 or 15 years is doing the opposite, which is encouraging heroism, encouraging pro-social behaviors in those that are seemingly less likely to do that. 
So before getting in contact with uh, Professor Paul Gilbert and compassion-focused therapy perspective, uh, I was working quite a bit with the perspective of social psychology and wondering how to reduce prejudice from those kind of prisms, um, how to increase altruistic action and so forth. So it's kind of the perfect melding because I was really interested in systemic and contextual circumstances and then seeing a model that is really more than a psychotherapy. Um, CFT, compassion-focused therapy, can be taught to many people from all walks of life. So we can do leadership training, we can train nurses, uh, therapists, students at universities, so it's really a model about how the mind works, how to respond to threat processes, why is it that we quickly hate each other in stressful circumstances, and how to buffer for that so that the, the flickering, so that the spark doesn't turn into a, a, a flame which can burn down the whole forest. Can you speak a little bit about some of the work you're doing with nurses and, and other communities? Sure, absolutely. Um, there's in-person and online dimensions to it. Um, In-person, I've been fortunate to work through through Stanford uh, with Dignity Health, which is a very large hospital chain. And we've been doing uh, work on burnout and resilience for nurses. And really what we do is um, teach a little bit of the, the model, which in this context, we don't call it compassion-focused therapy, CFT. We call it CMT, compassionate mind training. So these are a, a psychoeducational derivative of the psychotherapy perspective. And we just train people in these fundamental perspectives about how the, the threat system can quickly take over when we are in stressful circumstances, how we all have these tricky brains that have a better safe than sorry kind of mentality. Really recognizing that we do not feel safe, we do not feel at ease when we are in a stressful set of circumstances, how to respond to that, how to, in the language, I, I love the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, which is come back home, come back into the body, just to kind of regulate our, our nervous system. From that place, we recognize that we can easily become hijacked by our angry or anxious or sad self. And then noticing and switching to our compassionate self-identity, which is rooted in strength, authority, stability, uh, wisdom, and a sense of commitment for care. In the context of the hospital work, there's not a whole lot of time. So we're able to offer brief sessions, integrating them with motivational interviewing prompts, really eliciting from the nurses or other people participating what are the different ways in which we can employ these psychoeducational lessons towards increasing not only personal well-being, uh, not only caring for our patients with greater compassion, but also collaboration and alliance building. That helps me speak about the other dimensions of our training that we offer online uh, for, for leaders as well as for, for university students with compassion skills training, uh, because we really try to touch with our programs upon this ancient evolutionary tension of competition versus collaboration. Uh, it's another perspective from, from Paul Gilbert, that these social mentalities that we have. Um, uh, from the beginning of time, driving our species has been this dynamic of trying to compete, trying to uprank the other, trying to dominate the other, this dominant submissive kind of dynamic. Um, and, and that leads to a lot of problems. It leads to increased threat responses, increased stress, more anger, more aggression, the desire to get above others. And then on the other side of the, the motivational spectrum is collaboration, alliance building, cooperation, 
So we, we, we teach a little bit about how both of these are powerful motivations towards action. We help people recognize what competition will do, which I named a little bit just now. And then we look at the benefits of alliance building, uh, collaboration, community of care type of perspectives. And when people do that, we also see improvement in stress, depression, anxiety. It's very important not only for nursing, this kind of teamwork, also for leadership. So we try to cultivate leaders that are more focused on alliance building than competition. Yes, I was really struck uh, at the conference that we attended how much Paul Gilbert spoke to competition being the source of so much of our suffering of humankind, you know, globally, that really going back to that competition and, and how we can cultivate more collaboration as a species. <laughs> so yeah. it's wonderful that you're working in, in businesses as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Because it's, 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 it might be the most powerful uh, cognitive process that we have, which is social comparison. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just us, other species as well. If you look at the, the big monkeys or some of the small monkeys too, they, they, they're eager to dominate to become the alpha male. Um, and they have to evaluate, am I strong enough to do this? Because if I'm not, I could die. But if I am and I don't do it, I miss out on an opportunity to get to the kind of top of the hierarchy, if you will. Uh, we do the same. Sometimes, just like the monkeys, other times we sublimate. We go on Facebook and we get depressed over people having a better weekend than us. Um, so, so that social comparison dynamic is tightly linked with the competition mentality. And Paul has shown with his evolutionary psychology perspective that this is the, the, the highway to depression, really, when we're obsessed with who's above me, who's below me, folks who are depressed, have a very hard time with what, what is self-esteem, this worthlessness. They just feel like they're, they're less than everybody else. So, so for us, competition is a way of understanding how that gets translated into an overly active threat system, uh, which leads to depression, stress, anxiety, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So your work really integrates not only, it sounds like developmental psychology, but evolutionary science. And what I was really struck by in, in your talk that you led was also some of the ancient healing practices that, uh, and contemplative practices. Can you speak to how you integrate some of those as well? Sure, sure. I'll, uh, I'll give you some uh, scientific excuses first. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the way it came about is, is, is really trying to track what is impactful, what, what is helpful to folks in psychotherapy? And for me, the journey was um, complex in the sense, if you remember at the beginning of the talk, I said that when I met Paul, he would complain to me repetitively that I'm too cognitive. Um, my own background, uh, undergraduate studies I did at Tel Aviv University was psychology and comparative literature. I got into this work you know, the French philosopher Michel Foucault really led me in many ways. Uh, narrative therapy is what I cared about the most. I was writing poetry and I thought narratives were um, the, the vehicle of, of, of understanding the human experience. To an extent, this is true. On a deeper level, the narratives that we carry are not driven by cognition. Uh, they are driven by our lived somatic experience, as well as these social circumstances. I very much appreciate the vocabulary that uh, Dan Siegel offers. He, he, he's written many books, both popular as well as heavily scientific books. Um, Dan Siegel is a psychiatrist out of UCLA, 
one of my recent favorite books from him is called Mind, A Journey into the Heart of Being Human. It's a very ginormous <laughs> book. Um, he essentially breaks down in very helpful ways the distinction between top-down and bottom-up experiences. Top-down being these, these ruminative thoughts that we continuously think and regurgitate and repeat and so forth. And on some level, they are less impactful than bottom-up experiences. Uh, they're less impactful in terms of behavioral change. Um, we kind of repeat them ad nauseum. And, and this is the, these are the thoughts that, you know, in CBT we think is our automatic thoughts uh, that we kind of get stuck with. We try to change them. And it's not, I think, sufficient to just change it with alternative thoughts that are also going to be ultimately top-down. So Dan Siegel really celebrates the, 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 the somatic experience. Bottom-up experiences entail things like, interoception of body sensations, right? So interoception is a fancy world from neuroscience, but it essentially has to do with noticing our physical experience. Uh, Peter Levine talks about felt sense. Paul talks about body memories. Um, there are different thinkers that are kind of suggesting the same things, that we need to pay attention to our physical expressions that are coming from within. That's one dimension of bottom-up experience. Another dimension is how they're linked to our motivational systems. So if I'm feeling very threatened or, or very safe, I will be driven towards different agendas. Another dimension of bottom-up experience has to do with imagery. We, we, we undervalue the power of imagery. But when we close our eyes, we can actually have these internal movies, and they're linked with different types of memories of things that happened in the past or perceptions, visions of what might manifest. Uh, ancient cultures have always known this, we have become, uh, I think, a bit afraid of what we don't fully grasp. So we try to link up with our language-based kind of thinking. Another example is smell, our sense of smell. Olfactory bulb is so powerful in navigating our emotional experience. When we smell something, it goes straight to our uh, amygdala, straight to our limbic system. There's no mediation. When I was working with the veterans, I was amazed to learn that for the guys coming back from Vietnam, if they were to walk near a, a Vietnamese pho place that has the soup and other Vietnamese food, they would get PTSD symptoms triggered instantly. The younger guys, they didn't have any problems with Vietnamese food, but they walk by a Middle Eastern restaurant, which was painful for me to hear because I think it's the best food in the world coming from that part of the world, and they would get triggered with PTSD symptoms. Why would that be? The olfactory bulb is so powerful. Uh, Deborah Lee speaks of that very eloquently in her work on trauma. So, so these are some of the reasons and the rationales to, to be interested in engaging in multisensory experiences. So what we did was a safe place practice, then integrating music, integrating sound. That, and there's more data that needs to be collected, but there's plenty of anecdotal experiences that we, when we have music or sound, that interacts with our occipital lobe. So we can create more interesting and perhaps more nourishing kind of imagery. Uh, we break through the, the, this, this cognitive stuckness with our thoughts. Uh, we had people spread the Palo Santo, which is uh, literally translates into the ancient tree, ancient uh, holy tree, the sacred tree. For thousands of years in South America, people have known that Palo Santo has uh, very unique properties. So when people are smelling the Palo Santo while practicing, while being exposed to the music, we saw that more, more dimensions of practice open up for people, 
experiences of safety and safeness basically un unfold in, in, in surprising ways because we, we break from the realms of the known into the unknown. Yes, I think for me the experience was, I've done a safe place imagery before, but when you led us through it with those different sensory modalities, it felt like on Technicolor. Like it was, I was completely lost in it and there was a point, point in time where I just wasn't really fully conscious of what was happening anymore except for the overwhelming feeling. And, and I do, I definitely it was associating other memories of having smelled Palo Santo and um, so it was pretty powerful and, and it, it did seem that there was sort of a unique uh, experience of, of drawing all those together. Yeah. Yeah, terrific. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, 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 and to be clear, I, I very much believe in, in cognitive work. I think that the role of cognitive work is then to support with integration and consolidation. So there, there's a great benefit to invoking and awakening the different um, senses of smell, uh, imagery that comes from within, body sensations. And like you were suggesting, you, you, you find yourself experiencing so much more, which is, again, it's this bottom-up experience that goes beyond your, 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 uh, your cognitive mind or mine or any other person for that matter. I think the tragedy is we overvalue thought in our current culture, and we think that this language-based kind of thinking is everything that is being experienced, and that is the compass to understanding reality. When we're able to invoke and wake up additional senses, additional somatic experiences, we, we, we basically have access to additional sources of wisdom. The, 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 the slight irony with our current culture is we feel like we are so sophisticated with our modern ways of being. We have these computers, we have all these technologies, and we've become cut off from what our species has known since the beginning of time. We are connected to nature, to everything around us. We can be rooted into the ground. These are not metaphors. These are real-life manifestations and ancient cultures have always been active in invoking and awakening that from within towards new growth, new dimensions of wisdom, as, as well as care. This is linked with compassion because these kind of practices help us learn how to effectively work and regulate our threat system so that we don't become overwhelmed by it, as well as activate our caretaking and soothing capacities. Yes, and you access that as well and, and probably somewhat cognitive way by using the wisdom cards with us and it sounds like that's also something you do with the nurses can you speak to that right yeah absolutely so again for me multi-sensory is everything including not abandoning my love for narratives uh so the idea is to work with the body and and engage people in all of their their somatic uh felt senses and from that place of accessing additional forms of wisdom generating, for instance, the, the wisdom quote, which we've done with the nurses as well as other groups, uh, acknowledging each human being as, 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 as a person that, that harbors wisdom, harbors understanding about the human experiences, part of my own personal mission. It also supports um, responding to oppression, honoring each individual as somebody that can contribute something and honoring their voices. So we have people, after we teach a little bit of the model and discuss a little bit about what's important uh, in a particular context of work, for instance, hospital or other settings, uh, offer a wisdom quote, and then we share these wisdom quotes around. 
we link those with motivational interviewing prompts, with behavioral prompts, so that people can act upon these prompts. Um, I love the work that I do. If it does not translate into behavioral change, I feel like I have not really, you know, met my my, my task fully. Yes. Yes. Can you um, talk more about what you mean by the flow of compassion? Because you alluded to in a lot of these settings, working with nurses to be compassionate for their patients, but also for them to be compassionate towards themselves. And can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, this is really straight out of the, you know, the, the Paul Gilbert's model, the compassion-focused therapy and compassion mind training that we offer. Um, I personally struggle with programs that aim at teaching self-compassion as, as a fundamental goal. Uh, I could, you know, make some obvious uh, moralistic or ethical claims about it, that it's not only about taking care of ourselves, but I think beyond that is the issue of efficacy and also recognizing what are we made of, what what is our mind constructed of in terms of how we function. And when we really look at it, we recognize that compassion is a three-direction flow. It has to do with extending to others, receiving care from others, as well as self-compassion. So I certainly care about teaching self-compassion in the context of these three directions. Paul has demonstrated and work that I've done with Dr. Dan Martin out here as a dear friend I met at Stanford. Dan is the person with whom I do the work online for compassion skills training. Uh, so Dan is a very brilliant social psychologist, he's a statistician. We've done a lot of work together in the US with thousands of people with different samples looking at the three directions of compassion we see that they are correlated with each other. So caring for others, receiving and self-compassion are, are connected. They're also connected with stress, depression, anxiety, as well as burnout. Here's a really important comment about the three direction, the flow of compassion. It's another reason why I, I struggle with only focusing on self-compassion. When we look at the capacity to receive compassion, the numbers are very similar in terms of correlation with the relationship with stress, depression, anxiety as they are with self-compassion. In other words, my ability to receive compassion from others is equally important to my ability to extend compassion to myself with regards to stress, depression, anxiety. Now, I believe that on a fundamental level, the ability to receive might even be more important. Because if you look at the attachment work, we can even talk about prenatal before the baby is born in terms of receiving care. But certainly the first day the baby is alive, what is their fundamental skill? It's receiving care, receiving nurturance and compassion. The baby is not receiving care and compassion early on, attachment is disrupted. And everything in life will continuously be disrupted. So. The first task as a human being is not self-compassion, it's receiving compassion. It's from this place of being able to safely receive that we begin to see benefits in terms of extending to others and, and recognizing the benefits of self-compassion as well. That's a little bit of the flow and compassion. I'm happy to say more if anything comes up for you you want to ask. Yeah, well, I think that that was really uh fascinating for me to learn about because I think a lot of times when I'm working with clients I'm so focused on the self-compassion component and haven't really done a full assessment and I've been doing more since the training right. uh, doing more assessments using the fears of, of compassion scale and it's blown me away of how many clients actually talk about when you know, there's a question about feeling embarrassed 
when Mm -hmm. compassion is directed to them or feeling uncomfortable and how that is probably very much interfering with um, them, them being able to, to create a sense of safeness in their lives because they're unable to receive it actually as, uh, I think it was uh, Russell Colts that said it's almost like an exposure experiment. (laughs) And in in the therapy room itself of when your job as a therapist is to be providing compassion for your client and they have difficulty receiving it. That's a real challenge. How do you work with that? Absolutely. Um, and, and, and I'll add another, an even deeper one, a more difficult one in terms of receiving, fears of receiving compassion. Um, I'm, I'm afraid of receiving your help because if you offer me help right now, you might help me and it might be useful to me. And if that happens, I will begin to trust you. And then some time will go by where I consistently trust you. And then I'm really going to need your help. And then you're not going to be there for me, just like my mother, father, or other attachment figures that abandoned me when I really needed help. So I'd rather block you off completely, right? So that's another description of a fear of receiving, which is so deeply rooted in learning history and attachment wounds. Um, how, do you, how do you work with that? You know, at, at the clinic, um, we, I have the privilege of showing some students some videos of therapy that I've done with, with clients. And there's a particular session where I work with somebody and this person had a major life uh, accomplishment, a very impressive one. And I, I commented on how that's an impressive thing. I made a comment about the strength of that individual. And, and, and frankly, when I make that comment, I, I wasn't thinking some huge thing would come from it. I was just wanting to extend a, a generous comment about the strength that I was witnessing. And, and that individual made a face like, like this. And that facial expression became a 30-minute portion of that therapy session, which I've shared with students. And I just say, well, what is this face? What, what, what do you think happened here? I just extended a comment and you made a face. And she says, well, I don't know. I didn't even notice that. And I was like, well, do you notice now that you made that face? I said, I guess I did. So we were able to tap into this, this, this nonverbal or preverbal uh, somatic response to receiving a sense of care, receiving a sense of kindness, in this case from the therapist. This stuff is before language. That's why it's so profound. This individual, uh, you know, had many life struggles, uh, suicide attempts, um, substance use, um, rape, really terrible things that most terrible thing that could happen to an individual. And and this individual had a hard time taking in a sense of care and, and, and generosity, and it manifested through their facial expression. Also through voice tones, we'll see it through body postures. So we try to notice these, we call them FBRs, fears, blocks, and resistances, really how they show up on the, on the somatic level as well. That's why I want to really attune to the clients. Oftentimes, these, these tells are going to be more quick than the verbal. You might see a person flinching, but then just saying, thank you. So there is a little bit of a mismatch. Gilbert talks about the cognition-emotion mismatch. We can also consider the cognition-somatic mismatch, right? It's not congruent. Ruined. It's not integrated. So paying attention to these challenges is some of how we might work with fears, blocks, and resistances to receiving care. And then would you eventually work with the client again in an exposure type of way where you would work towards giving her the feedback with her out with without her blocking eventually? Is that yeah, and, and I think that would be, you know, the, the, the most popular response in this work is it depends, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think 
I, I think that the context will dictate if it should be more heavily psychoeducational, if it should be more heavily experiential. Yeah. Uh, we might get curious together. I mean, if, if it's very much alive in that person, that kind of intense pushing away, I'd be much more interested in working with that than, than, than doing psychoeducation. So I might just try to have them come back into the body and really more deeply feel the resistance. And maybe I'll have them close their eyes and see how it, the sensations in the body wake up, see if any imagery wakes up, trying to see if we can visit with some of the earliest memories they can they can encounter about a time they pushed away in, in, in similarly. And, and ideally, if you do that kind of work, you get to some early childhood memories of, of feeling unsafe, of these attachment wounds, and see if we can have a little bit of, uh, you know, Peter Levine talks about pendulation, kind of moving towards the distress and then coming back to safety. So the ability to pendulate between that which invokes a threat response, which activates attachment wounds, and then coming back to diaphragmatic breath, soothing breathing, embodying our compassion itself, the ability to observe it from this kind of meta-reflection perspective, and then moving again towards the experience. And yeah, it is a type of exposure, absolutely. And that's something we all could be, I think, more conscious of aware of, of, of the subtle ways in which we block compassion from others and it and even just having that level of awareness throughout your day of are you doing subtle things to prevent people from coming in and just that awareness alone could probably shift some behavior as well absolutely absolutely and you know i'll share another strategy with which we do it because we also implement these these online programs so i wanted to just share with you we have this this new company called bright city it's kind of like a university but bright city so it's with an s and we've been offering uh, online trainings to people. And what we're seeing with the online training, when people do it alone, it's probably less beneficial, the motivation is less there, and there's less of an experiential feel to people's experiences. Um, so what we're doing is peer-to-peer -peer learning. So we have people go on, on video chat, and after reading a little bit of psychoeducational materials, we have them engage in experiential discussions. And in that context, we actually have modules we, and so, for instance, compassion skills training is eight modules. Three of the eight are focused on receiving care, extending care, and self-compassion or self-care. So we spend time in each week on the different fears, blocks, resistances to giving and receiving. And in that context, we have people discuss fears of giving and receiving. Because it's online, we don't really go deep into the trauma, memories, and attachment wounds. Instead, we focus on success stories, so kind of bringing together narrative as well as positive psychology ideas, share about a time where you were afraid of receiving help from somebody and it proved useful. What about it proved useful? What was scary about it? What are some of the outcomes that came from it? Uh, now that you can observe that story of receiving help and how that was useful to you, how do you think that would impact your future conduct about giving and receiving help? What are some concrete examples that you can consider that you might change in your life in the next few weeks because of doing that. So so ultimately I was trained as, as a narrative guy, as a behaviorist. So we want to work with the somatic experience, paying attention to holdings in the body, then translating that to a new story of behavioral change. And in the following week, that person will be asked by their partner, what was it like practicing receiving care in this new way? Right? So we follow up in this structured kind of protocol fashion. So, so it's really based on context. In, in psychotherapy, it will be heavily experiential, moving towards the threat system. Online, we will create a more safe conduit for people to 
to get to know themselves in this way and move towards behavioral change in a way that would support them and others, hopefully. So is the Bright City program, who is that available to? So it's available for uh, therapists in training. So we can offer it as a kind of CEU program for therapists that are, it's an opportunity to learn about the compassion model, which is the CFT perspective. Um, it's also an opportunity to get to know oneself in addition to getting CUs, learning about CFT. The discussion prompts end up being a rich source of opportunity to use new practices in psychotherapy. So these are usually, you know, it's two therapists talking with each other, but then you can use these discussion prompts in, in, in your practice as well. We have other versions geared towards nursing, uh, leadership training, physician training, and, and so forth. Uh, in, in the context of psychotherapy training, I, I, I get excited about it because it's an opportunity for people to, you know, receive CUs, but also do it in a very experiential way. In the context of leadership training, really the emphasis is shifting from competition to collaboration. We're able to shift this prejudicial view of the other, uh, invoking a more egalitarian view of people that we're working with. Uh, and again, not so much from a moralistic or ethical perspective. Of course, I care a whole lot about it and I hope other people do, but from an efficacy perspective. So, so for instance, with the online work we've done at Bright City, we've seen that business students who took the leadership program, who were very high in social dominance orientation, which is probably the root of all isms, so chauvinism, racism, uh, fascism, authoritarian perspective, it all has to do with the belief that there is a hierarchy and some people are better than others. So those individuals, interestingly, are also higher in stress, depression, anxiety. It wasn't surprising to us that they were lower in compassion. Importantly, they were also lower in, in self-compassion. The ability to receive was lower for them. So for those, those individuals, we could increase compassion and reduce stress, depression, anxiety. So people that are geared towards this kind of domineering attitude towards others have improved well-being because of taking these compassion programs and they become more efficacious working with the system as a whole seeing that an alliance building perspective will yield better results. Yes. So if we wanted to look that up, is that through, so B-R-I-G-H-T-S-I-T-Y, is that, exactly, is that the yeah. website? Brightcity.com. So okay. it's Bright City S. Thank Great. you. Yeah. And I'll put a link to that in our uh, show notes so people Tres can click on that and learn more about it. You really piqued my interest. I love doing uh, clinical CEUs that are uh, sort of you're practicing the skills on yourself and then it makes it so much more powerful to disseminate with your clients after you've learned it yourself and done the work yeah. on your own being. So thank you. And a, sort of a, a question for the future, where do you see psychology moving? Because it seems like, sure. yeah, you're moving out of the depression, anxiety focus into other areas. With the pathology. Yeah, practice. and you know, yeah, I, I, in a way, I kind of grapple with this question. I think that the beginning of the answer is that I see psychology moving towards realms that are perhaps less psychological as we think of them today. Uh, I've been thinking for a few years about this this concept, which may or may not be catchy. I don't know, but this idea of humanology or trying to look at at, at humans in, in in a whole holistic fashion. It's, it's becoming abundantly clear that there is more and more uh, emphasis on somatic psychology because it, it's become an, an impactful way of helping people. 
uh, it's not just in neuroscience, it's also yoga traditions, folks that are looking at different types of movement. Again, Dan Siegel is such a pioneer because the scientific merit of his work is undeniable. And he talks about dance, he talks about choreography, he talks about synergistic flow, synchronous movement. Um, I think that in order to facilitate psychological benefits, we're going to become more and more embodied, recognizing that we cannot separate the mind from the body. So that's the beginning of the answer. Also, yeah, I, I think for us as a model that's really focused on the shadow side and the, the threat system, um, it's, it's really integrating this perspective of reducing pain, reducing suffering, as well as augmenting some human qualities, which have to do with altruism care, the ability to nurture self and others um, are not always what people are looking for in the randomized clinical trials. They want to look at stress, depression, anxiety, or, you know, PTSD, OCD, or specific conditions, if that's the focus. But we're seeing more and more the ability to augment capacities for empathy and care in, in those ways and to be embodied in the process of doing it, safely doing so, will also support symptom reduction. So, I imagine the data taking us there more and more, integrating more senses, as we said before. Mm -hmm. Yes, wonderful. Well, thank you. I, um, in thinking about you and your work, it's it's something that I can go to bed and feel peaceful as I go to sleep, <laughs> knowing you that should. you're out there doing this work and you're changing not only the lives of future psychologists as a trainer, but also the lives of many, you know, in terms of the people that you work with on a broad scale and really appreciate you for doing this work and doing the research that you do. Thank you so much. Yes, you, you, you've just described my life uh, dreams and fantasies. So I <laughs> appreciate that yeah. to do more and more of this work and scaling it so we can reach more and more individuals and, and groups. So I appreciate that. Yes. Thank you. And I will put a link to uh, just you, some of your, you've been, you've done TED Talk, you've done some other uh, lectures that are online. So if people want to learn more about you and listen more to about your research, I'll put some of the links to those as well as the link to Bright City and um, your contact information. But I really appreciate you coming on the show yeah. today. Thank you so much. I appreciate being with you. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.